On the eve of the annexation of Texas by the United States in 1845 and a war with Mexico looming on the horizon, the New York Herald editorialized. Annexation is now settled. The popular feeling in Texas in favor of the measure has swept away every obstacle and entirely overwhelmed all the efforts made to defeat it. The consummation of this important measure will have one great and salutary effect. It will at once impress the mind of Europe and of all civilized nations. With a becoming sense of power of this country and the irresistible strength of its movements, when the great body of the people and the government are resolutely united. The first great step in the accomplishment of our work has been taken. It is triumphantly successful. Our government cannot pause in the work. Oregon and California are also to be annexed. Mexico has been preparing to make an inroad into California, but all the efforts of the mongrel race of Mexico to retain power and strength on this continent will be fruitless. The feeble scepter has been broken forever. Anglo-Saxon energy and Anglo-Saxon will are in the ascendant, and so must ever continue. The time is fast coming when the American Union will embrace the whole continent, north and south. That result is inevitable. And of that, the annexation of Texas is but the signal of the proof. Forties writing. Welcome back to the End of the Myth podcast, where we are working through historian Greg Grandin's 2019 book, The End of the Myth. We'll also uh, maybe working through some of our country's uh, deeply layered uh, psychoses. As we gotta go. love that. <laughs> I'm Brian, and I'm Munya, and today we're joined by historian and most importantly. Friend of the Mechanical Freak podcast, <laughs> multi-time guest, Marianne Let's Henderson. Let's go. <laughs> we have loaded up the show with Texas natives so that we can discuss how the slave economy's lust for expansion led to eventual annexation of Texas into the United States, which eventually led to a war with Mexico. But first, why did Americans come to Texas? There are lots of reasons, and I, I feel like as somebody who grew up in Texas, the ones you're sort of most readily handled are, you know, looking for adventure, folks with a sense of, you know, that independent pioneer spirit um, who felt that there just wasn't the amount of room, right, to, to move, to grow in the East, and we're looking for new opportunities. Uh, the thing that oftentimes is kept in the, in the background when you learn about um, Anglo-American settlement in Texas <clears throat> is that in particular uh, those white settlers moving to Texas 
were looking for a place where there was the land and the freedom to expand slavery. Um, and so when we're talking about why Americans, uh, why Anglo-Americans come to Texas, they come to Texas because of the system of chattel slavery. They come because it's a system that requires new land constantly. Uh, it's voracious for it, um, as opposed to free labor, which oftentimes relies on the creation of new technologies to intensify labor production. Um, slavery as a system relies on more land uh, to intensify the system. And so Anglo people settle in Texas because it's uh, what they consider and what the Spanish government even considers somewhat empty land. Yeah. And so, Ob yeah, obviously empty land that was not quite empty. Yeah, not empty. Yeah. <laughs> so so the, uh, yeah, the government considered it considered it empty land very much like it was full of like, you know, Native people, both in, you know, from Mexico and Native Americans, too, um, presumably. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, and, and in fact, right, this was exactly the reason why the, the Spanish government is so willing to uh, invite American citizens into Spanish territory, right? In, in some ways, it doesn't really make sense. Um, the United States has already shown itself to be an expansionist nation. Why would you just go inviting a bunch of U.S. citizens to come settle and offer them free land or cheap land? Um, and really what it was is that uh, Spain had had basically almost no luck over the course of its supposed reign in the Americas of controlling the region that becomes Texas. Um, and the biggest problem they faced was the Comanche Empire, which was an empire that spanned about 100 years um, from the late 18th century into well into the middle of the 19th century um, and was comprised of not simply the Comanche people, but many other indigenous peoples and nations that controlled trade um, and controlled culture and movement in the area. Uh, the Spanish had been trying unsuccessfully for years and years and years to expand their control of the regions of Texas, New Mexico, what becomes Arizona. Um, little success. And, and so what they hoped was that more Anglo, Anglo settlement in the region would help with that problem um, of taking Texas back, or at the time what would have been the vice royalty of Texas, back for the Spanish. Yeah, and for the Americans, there is this idea of Texas, you know, uh, Grandin touches on this a little bit as a safety valve, right? So for Southern slave owners who are still, you know, very much uh, aware and very much on their mind thinking about the Haitian Revolution, which had happened, you know, only a couple of decades prior. Uh, still terrified about. Still um... terrified about. Yeah, in their mind, they heck, they're kind of developing this idea that there is like a critical mass of slaves you can have before, you know, you really are like dealing with problems of revolt and things like that. Now, that critical mass is always 10 more than you currently have, you know, no matter what the density, slave density is of any state. Uh, every slave owner is pretty much always like, well, I still want more. But um, they saw, you know, Texas and the land there as a place to push excess slave population as a place to send slaves that were disobedient or seen as too rebellious. Uh, I think they well understood that Texas was going to be a very, like a very bad place for slaves to work. Uh, 
and you know it was seen as a place that they could be sent to it also was a safety valve for whites in the south as well most whites in the south of course are not slave owners um the majority of whites in the south are desperately poor as we've talked about in like very destitute episodes. yeah and but there is a sort of somewhat rising i guess middle class if you want to even call it that you know if you're a a rising grind guy in the south uh (laughs) you know your dream every middle class dream is to eventually become a plantation owner the problem of course being in the southern states that the land is gone by this point right it's all taken um and so where there could be a potential class you know uh antagonism there uh, the promise of new lands, new slave lands in particular in Texas, it, you know, it dissolves that class conflict, right? Uh, by, pro- you know, promising something they're not going to give, but promising, you know, the idea of like, you could be a plantation owner over there. Yeah. So, so these are basically like the guys who will watch like the Gary V videos on on YouTube and being like, <laughs> "Damn, <laughs> gotta get into success mindset. <laughs> I gotta exactly. grind for these views." I, it's funny they bring that up, but like, there's the literal comparison is all those uh, Instagram videos that you see now. That's like, "Hey, you want to get money? Like, here's the way you do it. Number one." Uh, buy an apartment building yeah. number two rent the apartments out for more than the lease you know more than yeah. your mortgage yeah. right, right? <laughs> and you know i mean that is in effect the same scam right yes. is it's people who are not quite working class but certainly are not you know what we call uh certainly not part of the ruling class to be sure uh who are seeing their opportunities they're seeing their downward mobility out in front of them and people are selling them a dream, right? A dream that, of course, leaves out the whole first step, which is have the money to begin with. Mm-hmm. <laughs> always, <laughs> always the critical first step that nobody <laughs> seems to be able to figure out. You know, usually, usually they'll say something like, "Just get it from your parents. Just get a get a million dollars from your parents." Yeah, get them to pay the down payment. Well, every, <laughs> everybody gone. knows your net worth is your net worth. So, <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> yeah, yeah. so yeah, which it, really I, is is a lot of sort of the deal for some of these middling, you know, wannabe capitalists too. Um, a lot of them are being fronted by major planters from the East who have no interest in being out in the rough wilds of whatever they think Texas is like or anywhere further West, but certainly are willing to speculate and gamble on somebody else homesteading out West, right? This is something that happens throughout the West and happens in Texas as well. And are certainly willing to, if the land becomes fruitful, um, if, a plantation is able to sort of be established and held consolidated into their empire. And so, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, the money that's backing a lot of this settlement is still planter money, right? It, it, and it still should be seen, right, as, as a consolidation of wealth and power, um, not what it looks like, which is a bunch of sort of like individuals running out trying to, to grab theirs. In fact, right, that's not what really happens. Right, there's actual forces of power at play and like real capital behind it, um, and not just you know bumbling oafs like wandering into the wilderness and you know just mm. making a life like the myth kind of tells us. Yeah, although yeah. there will be plenty of bumbling idiots. Yeah. <laughs> oh yes, oh no, that, that that is still true. A critical feature of American <laughs> history. Like, and yeah. <laughs> 
yeah, very it, much dumb, but they just backed actually by like real like planter capital that are like they they are basically used as kind of like pawns to you know speculate yeah. on assets. Yeah, and it's it's important you know to to Marianne's point of uh, the planter class. You know, in the movie uh, Django Unchained, Calvin Candy really is like a perfect depiction of the American planter at this time. They think there's some sort of sophisticance. They fancy themselves gentlemen of leisure and whatnot. Uh, all of them are dumb as hell. Another like wonderful touch to that character. Um, but yeah, they're not go- Texas is a scary place at this time, right? Like, you know, that's part of why the Spanish are asking somebody else to go in there is it's like, please. Yeah, <laughs> someone it, it's, get yeah it's, it's like it, there's no good land. Any farming's going to be really difficult. There are hostile, you know, Indian tribes and groupings there that have been fighting the Spanish and fighting filibustering Americans and things like that. Uh, it's 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 not an easy place to go. So. Uh, that's where the dummies come in. <laughs> and, uh, but it, it's important to note that from very early on, uh, you know, Stephen F. Austin, who is the first person to get a large land grant in Texas, from very early on, he makes clear, you know, in a letter to, I believe, his brother says, you know, Texas must be a slave country. Circumstances and unavoidable necessity compel it. And there's an editor, an editorial in the Clarksville Northern Standard, which is a Texas paper. Uh, you know, he's writing after the annexation of Texas into the United States, but writes, quote, we want more slaves. We need them. We care nothing for slavery as an abstraction, but we desire the practicality, the increase of our productions, the increase of the comforts and wealth of the population. And if slavery or slave labor ministers to this, why that is what we want. And, you know, slavery becomes the centerpiece of American migration into Texas. And as we've kind of been driving home this entire time, that is because of its economic value. Yeah. So we talked about these bumbling idiots who, uh, you know, moved into Texas. Like what, what is their whole deal? Like let's drill down into that a little bit more. Uh, So in the 1940s, uh, the sociologist, John Hope Franklin uh, wrote a sociology of the American South uh, called the Militant South, which is still an incredible read to this day. Uh, but he describes in it the sort of effect that chattel slavery as an institution had on the people in the South. Yeah, and he says, quote, The connection between slavery and the martial spirit was almost universally recognized. In the South, the swagger of the bully was called chivalry. A swiftness to quarrel was regarded as courage. The bludgeon was adopted as a substitute for argument, and assassination was lifted to a fine art. Yeah, I think this quote is um, is great. It's really illustrative of sort of what we're talking about. Sort of undergirds the culture of the types of folks who are going to uh, be attracted to Texas, um, and, and bigger than that, um, speaks to this culture that slavery creates amongst white folks. Um, so to, to dig into this a little bit more, I just wanted to share sort of the story of Thomas Jefferson, who of course has um, all of these ideas about the gentility of the South um, as himself, right? Van- fancies himself a philosopher, tinkerer, invention, uh, inventor, um, and oftentimes is remembered simply as that. Uh, it's only really recently that putting, you know, owner of enslaved people 
first on his bio is, is something that's starting to happen. So Jefferson has this dream, right, of a, extending and really sort of shining a beacon to the world of what an amazing place this country is that he's helped create by uh, building the University of Virginia, UVA. And very quickly, this institution that's supposed to be uh, you know, the pinnacle of Southern gentility and knowledge mm-hmm. creation devolves into chaos. Students are pulling professors out of the classroom and beating them with sticks, cursing <laughs> them out when those professors <laughs> dare disagree with a, an argument they give in class. It's a hellscape. Uh, they expel lots of people. There's constant fighting amongst students, drinking, just debauchery. Uh, to the, it brings Jefferson to tears, actually, um, on multiple occasions. He's he's distraught by this place that was supposed to be um, this site of sophistication, right? The new U.S. aristocracy. And I think something, and Drew Faust is not not my favorite normally, but she wrote an article for the Washington Post a while back. Uh, and this line in particular, I think, is really important, which she says, the habit of command was essential to those who would be entrusted with exerting and maintaining control in their slave society. And I think when we want to think about the Anglo-American men that are going to come out of a slave society, a slave culture, and make their way to Texas, this idea of what I would call a sort of swagger, an assumption of rightness to the point of refusal to listen to anybody else, some would say that the toxic masculinity we're dealing with now might have its roots in some of this and actually be very racially connected. Uh, That's the type of person we're talking about when we're talking about who's going to come to Texas. Um, It's going to be people with a lot of swagger, a lot of false confidence, uh, who are quick to anger and reticent to listen to the reason or the command of others, including people they would consider their equals or even their betters, um, which is going to come into play when we talk about, say, the prosecution of uh, the war for Texas independence. Yeah. And I mean, if you're thinking about this from a uh, literature perspective, think Cormac McCarthy's Blood Meridian. Like every character in Blood Meridian is a perfect exemplar (laughs) of the guys who are coming out here. Emphasis on the men who are coming out here. Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, to give some examples of some of the people who came out, uh, there was the case of the Bowie brothers, uh, their most famous member being Jim Bowie. Um, they had initially some dealings with Texas while working for the notorious pirate Jean Lafitte, who was based out of Galveston in about 1815 to 1820-ish. And Jean Lafitte was famous for capturing Spanish slave ships. He would then bring them to Galveston. They would take stock over the living versus dead cargo, at which point the Bowie brothers would take those that were still alive, take them to the port of New Orleans, where taking advantage of a loophole in a law in Louisiana, uh, they would get past the laws against the importation of slaves by saying that they were in fact not slaves, but recovered cargo at sea. Uh, at which point they would then be given a reward for recovering the cargo, a finder's fee for recovering the cargo, at which point they were allowed to then move the slaves into the South and sell them, going as far as Mississippi and Georgia to to sell, I mean, this human cargo, uh, a lot of times for as much as $1,000 a person. Uh, they were rumored to have made $65,000 in the three years that they were doing this, a 
fairly unimaginable sum for the time period. Uh, these are they basically become very rich men. Jim Bowie eventually goes into Texas and marries the uh, daughter of a span of a member of the Spanish aristocracy. Uh, just to give you an idea, I mean, this is a guy who was, you know, an idiot, an American idiot in the <laughs> South, right? Enriches himself on, you know, pirated slave cargo and is now married into, you know, a, a, a daughter of the Spanish aristocracy. He then gets involved in real estate speculation in Texas because that is the American dream is to involve yourself in real estate speculation, <laughs> at which point he gets taken to court for essentially unloading hundreds of plots of land under false titles right <laughs> that he just fucking forged and would be like yeah no you have this um in the a end, true american a true american uh in the end he raises a militia to fight mexico uh he finds himself at the alamo where he's you know puts himself in charge of the irregular units so the volunteer units um and will eventually die at the alamo while laying in his bed sick during the actual while watching uncut gems while watching uncut (laughs) gems exactly (laughs) and uh you know um the type of guy right that we would find here and so sitting across from Bowie at the alamo was of course the person in charge of the regular troops uh which is william barrett travis who is another one of these sort of figures he's originally from alabama He becomes a lawyer uh, based off of a loan he gets from an old man that he's grown close to. Those of you that have listened to our uh, me and Justin's podcast about Lyndon Johnson, he's a he's a professional son like Lyndon Johnson. (laughs) And uh, Travis, of course, is an awful lawyer, as you're going to find out. So he makes zero dollars because back then, basically, you would only make money from your settlements. Right. He has no settlements because he's bad at his job. and his professional dad takes him to court uh he is worried he's going to go to debtor's prison so he just vanishes one day leaving his wife a note saying like uh gone to texas see it see you later (laughs) 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 and once in texas he realizes that uh actually this is a perfect place for him because all the slave owners need a lawyer uh who basically is there to adjudicate you know uh missing slaves right because in texas slaves go missing all the time it's kind of like missing cattle they're all fighting did another slave owner take my slave did the spanish take my slave you know all this bullshit right and travis finds himself you know a you know well-respected and uh you know a recruited guy finally finding finding success he eventually goes to anawak which is a town in south texas uh, where the the top official for the new government of Mexico overseeing the Texas tor- territories in Anahuac, the top military official. Um, Texas slave owners have claimed that he has uh, stolen their slaves and then liberated them, a story that's actually probably true. And Travis goes down to do some expert legal negotiation. And by expert legal negotiation, what I mean is he starts anonymously sending letters to this guy saying, We've we've raised thousands of men in Louisiana. We're coming to kill you. <laughs> oh, so basically doing. Andrew Cuomo's like yeah. uh, chief of staff. A classic <laughs> basically legal his maneuver. entire cabinet. Yeah. yeah. It's a classic <laughs> legal maneuver. Uh the uh Spanish official sees right through all of this and immediately puts Travis in prison, leading to what is called the Anahuac Crisis. 
uh, a bunch of slave owners in Texas actually do at that point begin insane. Like, maybe we should raise a militia to go get him. Eventually, in order to cool everything down, the Mexican government just, you know, sw- swaps out military officials in the region and they let Travis free, uh, which really showed Travis. That's why he ends up being in the Alamo <laughs> at the time of the attack, dying, of course, along with Jim Bowie. That is wild. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) And we also have Sam Houston. Uh, Some would say the other father of our of our state. You know, Stephen F. Austin, Sam Houston's are twin fathers. Yeah. So I I feel like Sam Houston and I was just going to chuck Davy Crockett in there real briefly. um, Are two examples, two other good sort of examples of. um, (sighs) the kind of Anglo settlers that end up in, in Texas. So Davy Crockett famously after uh, losing his seat in the house in 1835 tells his own constituents, uh, you may all go to hell. I will go to Texas. Uh, And I feel like this sort of sentiment is just really emblematic of the sort of like, take my ball and go home kind of mentality of the sort of this, middling politician who can't win the game in the east and so moves the game uh it's like a bunch of rage quitters basically like it's just a rage quit to go to texas it is and again i think it fits in line with that idea of i I can't be wrong you saying this i'm not going to listen to this i'm I'm leaving but uh sam houston in particular i think is a really interesting sort of I would call him the the soft boy of his generation, as opposed to say <laughs> William Travis or or the Buoys. Uh, so Sam Houston, who of course huge iconic hero, general figure of the Texas War for Independence, actually ends up back in national politics after uh, the Civil War. Has a hugely successful career, but starts out as a failed Tennessee governor. Uh, he's a Jackson acolyte. Um, which is where he's able to sort of get the success, get the votes necessary to become governor of Texas. <clears throat> Ends up having a failed marriage to a, a teenager. Surprisingly, the 20-year age difference didn't work in their favor. And so just oh, up... Marion, hey- Marion, I know that you're not on Twitter. Uh, we're not allowed to talk about age gaps anymore. Yeah, uh, that's problematic. That's, that's, that's a taboo and problematic. problematic. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> got it. <laughs> You're right. It's totally okay for a 40 year old man to marry a 19 year old. Got it. Now you're, yeah, <laughs> you know, because the 19 year old, they're actually adults. You're actually limiting their like adult autonomy by agency. criticizing the age gap and their agency as a grown woman. So it's well, actually misogynist. Well, let's just say criticize the man. You also have considered that she's very mature for her age. Well, let's yeah, just say yeah, yeah, she's she's years beyond her peers. Well, you know, let's just say that her agency wasn't limited because she left his ass and that's why he was so sad (laughs) so he's sad about this this marriage falling apart it sends him crying to arkansas and the cherokee where he actually hangs out for a while um as so many soft boy fuck boys picks up an indigenous (laughs) woman to play acoustic guitar to and cry about his problems. I don't know. Play play Wonderwall. (laughs) And, and eventually sort of like, I guess pull, pulls himself kind of back together and makes his way um, 
to Texas. And because of his connections to Jackson, right, it is able to find some power, some success in these Western states and territories, which is, is very common for a lot of these kind of middling achievement uh, white dudes. Um, I think something, so, so I feel like something that he is emblematic of, of a lot of sort of Texan settlers is the frontier's ability to transform a loser into a hero. Somebody who, mm-hmm. if, if kept in the grind back in the East, just really wouldn't find their place. But in the sort of brutal expansion of slavery, they're able to sort of find these, these spots where they can flourish maybe isn't the right word, but certainly Mm. carve out fiefdoms. Um, and through that sort of carve out, uh, financial success, political success. I I think the other thing that's important about Sam Houston is he's really representative of, um, the cultural attitude of, of more of that sort of soft boy settler. So we're definitely going to have a lot of Anglo American settlers who come to Texas with some really pretty hardcore, uh, racial ideas around indigenous and Mexican folks um, of wanting full segregation, full um, extermination or expulsion. Sam Houston is is much more that sort of crossroads of fetishization and revulsion of indigeneity um, that I think is also characterized by a lot of white male settlers who he ultimately marries a Cherokee woman named Tiana. Uh, as I said, he lived among the Cherokee for a while in, in many ways supports and values pieces of indigenous culture while at the same time actively uh, leading a government in Texas and ultimately um, as part of the U.S. government that is interested in the the extermination and the expulsion of indigenous peoples. And so this idea of both fetishizing the sort of freedom and liberty and wildness, uh, and in in particular in uh, white males' case, right, the masculinity of uh, what they consider the savagery of indigenous peoples uh, on the one hand, while also supporting and creating policies that are going to lead to their marginalization and extermination. It's important to kind of, you know, hammer down on one of the points that you brought up is that, you know, one of the things that Bia Munia have done on the show over and over again is talk about how westward expansion is sold to people, you know, who are trying to resolve these crises in, on the East Coast as this way of like, hey, you know that thing you want that you definitely can't get here? What's well, for you out there? And most of the time, it's a lie. Most of what's for them out there is dying alone. But it is true for some of them, right? Like Sam, guys like Sam Houston. I mean, <laughs> had David Bowie, had David Bowie and and uh, David Bowie <laughs> had, had Jim <laughs> had Jim Bowie and William Travis been, I don't know had one ounce of brains when it came to tactical training, they probably have been doing great in Texas too. Very shortly after the war for independence, they were just idiots. So they get themselves murked. Right. But like they were doing fine up to that point, you know, better than they were at least. So there is a hint of truth of if you have the right combination of opportunism, cruelty, uh, it just, you know, and skin color, like there's a chance you could get something out there. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I, I find it funny how, um, you know, some some white guys are appalled when they get, you know, criticized for having a Rosetta Stone subscription to um, Japanese while having only um, <laughs> only Asian ex-girlfriends. And they're like, what? Like, I, I, I like all people, you know, like, et cetera. And it's like, you know, I mean, Sam Houston would probably say the same thing, <laughs> yeah, too, you yeah. know? <laughs> oh, yeah. I know some Cherokee, baby. <laughs> 
Yeah. <laughs> well, and, it, and it shows the, the complicated nature of uh, race, because one of the things, one of the narratives that's becoming very big at this time, which there's a romantic narrative uh, of the uh, sort of the idea more of romance, and then there's the romantic er- narrative more of the romantic philosophy happening simultaneously, which is this idea of the noble savage, which Sam Houston totally buys into mm-hmm. of this, you know, right. un, you know, they're untouched by civilization and therefore have none of its uh, sinful taints, right? Uh, but at the same time, inherent in the mythos of the noble savage is the elimination of the savage themselves, right? Because civilization must necessarily expand. Therefore, their untouched status will go away. They will become tainted goods like the rest of us and pushed aside, right? Um, but that coexisted with the growing sort of uh, racial theology of anglo-saxon supremacy and stuff like that which was explicitly uh, exterminationist um, those two things simultaneously coexisted and reinforced one another yeah and so now we're up to 1835 and the big texan mexico war happened so what exactly instigated that war between the texans and mexico at that time yeah, so our our war that comes to happen between uh, in in the history of this time we call them the Texians. Um, they're not they're not quite yet Texans. They'll have to fight this war, and on the other side of it, they'll become Texans. Uh, so we call them Texians, and that's our Anglo American settlers. Uh, when we talk about Tejanos, we're talking about folks of uh, mixed Indigenous and Spanish origin who who live in the region and have since Spanish colonization. Um, so our Texians, our Anglo-American settlers, uh, are coming into greater and greater conflict with this, the state of Mexico, the country of Mexico, for uh, a few different reasons. So most of these settlers, right, settlement began under the auspices of Spanish rule. Um, that has ended, right? By 1821, uh, the Mexican people have successfully finally fought off Spanish colonization and colonial rule and establish themselves as the country of Mexico. And the thing is, you know, apparently a a whole bunch of mixed race folks, indigenous folks, many of whom also dealt with slavery um, under the Spanish, don't think slavery is that great. And so in uh, 1823, they actually abolish slavery. Wow. So 1823, like that's uh, th- that's many decades before the U.S. even like had its civil war. So like <laughs> those ideas were like still like, you know, yeah. around yeah, in, it, in the West. Yeah. And it's important to note the uh, degree to which these sort of we see these the series of revolutions, if you want to call it that, mm-hmm. against colonial leadership, against, you know, feudal leadership and stuff happening in Europe and the colonies, the degree to which Enlightenment ideas are being utilized by the local sort of ruling class to throw off, say, colonial rulers, but are being imbibed and believed by those below them, right? And so that in Mexico, that, yeah, you know, they're they're looking at their revolution through the lens of the French Revolution, things like that, and they're taking the egalite (laughs) fraternity, you know, they're taking that shit seriously and say, like, no, that's what we're doing, right? And the Haitian Revolution, right? Like, again, when we talk about the reverberations of the Haitian Revolution, we can't can't underestimate, right? Haiti trains Simone Simone Bolivar, trains a bunch of other Latin American, like, freedom fighters. Mm -hmm. And so 
trains them militarily, trains them up politically. And so I, I think it's both that, you know, the working classes, the peasants of, of Mexico, of Latin America are imbibing a different version of enlightenment politics. But I think it's also right, we have to start talking about a homegrown Black, Indigenous, mm-hmm. um, POC sensibility about what freedom <laughs> actually means. Um, that is spreading throughout the continent, right? It, it is exactly as the the planter classes feared, um, and so so yeah, Mexico abolishes slavery, um, and this happens really early on in offering you know settlement to Anglo settlers. So the initial law they pass is the Imperial Colonization Law of eighteen twenty three. This bans the purchase and sale of enslaved people. Uh, And it also says that for anybody who's been born into slavery, they're to be freed at the age of 14. Which is uh, well before their prime sort of value years. So this is, of course, extremely unacceptable to the Texians. And Stephen F. Austin's forced to go to Mexico, to Mexico City, and essentially negotiate a cutout for for Texans, right? And say, like... Uh, can we get like some guys grandfathered in on this or at least an official we're going to turn our eye away from what's happening in Texas. And the one benefit that Stephen Austin Texans have is there's a lot of political turmoil in Mexico at the time. Right. So, uh, you know, Emperor Iturbide, who's, you know, in charge of the time, gets very quickly tossed out. And, you know, unfortunately, uh, the new Mexican Congress like redoubles down on slavery being illegal, <laughs> forcing Austin to again try and negotiate some sort of cutout. Yeah, um, I, I think where that conflict goes deeper is that Stephen F. Austin and others are are making their sort of political overtures to the new Mexican government to make exemptions for them and the enslaved people they're bringing into the region. I think what we need to keep in mind is that they're not waiting to hear mm. from the Mexican government what they say. This isn't slowing down the importation of enslaved people. This isn't stopping um, the vision that Anglo-American settlers have. All it is doing for them is solidifying a sense that and they are working with no longer a Spanish government, but a Mexican government that is increasingly hostile to not just their wants, but their needs. Again, as we talked about, the system of slavery requires new land. Um, and so this is not a is simply a need or a want, but as we think about Anglo-American settlement in Tejas as part of the larger project of U.S. Western expansion, it has to happen. We can't have things like Mexican people's desire for abolition stand in the way. Um, and so, I, I have a quick yeah. question um, mm-hmm. just before we move on because we have um, discussed how um, you know Texas was like a really hard place to have like um, agriculture and it was just like you know just like a hard place to settle in general um, wh- what was what was the primary work um, that um, you know planters were putting slavers to work for uh, yeah. in Mexico and oh sorry in Texas yeah so um we want to think about Anglo-American settlement into te- Texas as really not getting much further than the Brazos or the Nueces River, um, really centered around the Brazos, which is still in eastern Texas. Um, so eastern Texas is actually quite rich, fertile land. So the same kind of sugar plant production, um, rice production actually can happen very successfully and cotton production. So there's actually quite a bit of fertile land. It's initially where they settle 
um, before the, even before really the, the Mexican War in 1846, Anglo-Americans haven't made it much further west in, in real numbers. It's, it's the reason, as we'll talk about later, that San Antonio is such a dumb place to make a last stand. It's too far mm-hmm. west. Um, once you hit San Antonio, even a little further east, things start to dry out a lot. We're going to start to move into um, land that is on top of limestone. Try digging into that easily mm. without machine tools. Uh, and so once you get into west Texas, central and west Texas, we start to move into, uh, I think, what a lot of people think of when they think of Texas, right? That sort of hard scrabble desert landscape that, yes, is going to be much more difficult to eke a living out of. But East Texas is actually pretty fertile, pretty rich land. uh, And it's where most of the settlement and plantations are being built. And so basically, there's a series of crises that happen in the early 1830s that revolve around the Mexican Congress's increasing insistence that slavery, that the laws against slavery in Mexico be taken seriously inside the Texas territory and the growing number of American colonists in Texas who are not only saying fuck that, but are also, you know, importing weapons and stuff at this point, you know, are really preparing for some sort of conflict um, so Marianne, what, what, what sort of, what, what happens at this point? Like what walk us through maybe, uh, the, the cliff notes version of the war for independence. Sure. So the war between Texians and Mexico officially begins in October of 1835. Um, this happens when Mexican forces try to remove a cannon, um, from a garrison in Gonzales, um, This creates some conflict in order to avoid any further conflict. Mexican forces are ordered to retreat back to San Antonio after they encounter Texian militias who are angry at at them daring to try to remove this cannon. Um, And again, I I think what we want to think about here is what Brian was just saying, which is that for years before 1835, Anglo-American settlers, our Texians, have been preparing for this war, have been preparing for conflict They've seen the writing on the wall. Of course, they're going to do whatever they can politically to stave this off. But what they know is coming is war. What they know they want is Texas. And what they also know is that they're going to use the backing of the U.S. government to push this through. And so something Mm -hmm. important for us to remember at this point is that as the war for Texas independence develops, we don't want to think about this uh, as the myth is often told, especially in Texas, of like that past of a Texas, another country. Texas and Texians never believed they would be an independent nation. They never desired mm. that for the long mm. term. Yeah. What they desired when we're talking about a war for independence is independence from Mexico and the ability to annex themselves into the United States. And so they've been preparing for this moment for really, we can say at least a solid decade by 1835. And so this removal of the cannon is is really just pretense um, Mm. to begin hostilities. So shortly after the conflict in Gonzales, the Texian militia is convinced that the Mexican troops have brought large sums of gold with them and are holding this gold at the garrison that's at Goliad, Um, And so they raid the outpost, and this marks what we would consider the first battle of the revolution. Uh, They're wrong. 
There's no gold. <laughs> Surprisingly. Yeah. A, wait, a little... wait. Are, 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 are you are you meaning to tell me that they made up something about their enemies as a cause's ballet to go to war? Yeah. I, I I that's that's new information. I've never heard that story before. And to be clear, wild. it is the for the forces that raid uh, the the garrison at Goliad. They do believe the gold is there. I mean, this is a rumor <laughs> that they are all spreading. This is more a comment on. A, how stupid everybody involved in this is, but yeah. B, also the this is the high-minded ideals of our uh, purported heroes. That's incredible. <laughs> so it wasn't even it wasn't even a cynical lie. They genuinely no, believed they genuinely that there believed. was gold. Yep, they really did because they, they're they, really <laughs> dumb. <laughs> they got mad that they must have moved it out of Goliad and even tried to like <laughs> they tried to look for it for a while. I mean, there's all. This, the story of lost Mexican gold in Texas, I can tell you, this is just a little side note here, uh, but there's a, <laughs> I remember this, I especially remember this happening, I was probably like 12 or whatever was happening in San Antonio, but there's a live from San Antonio Unsolved Mysteries episode where they literally dig up the front of the Alamo, established <laughs> in downtown San Antonio. They dig up the front of the Alamo to go try and find lost Mexican gold. This is in like 1994 or five, something like that. Oh uh, you know, so I mean, the the, st- the to this day, some of them still believe that this Holy gold is, is in existence. You know? The rules, man. Oh my god. <laughs> such a good story (laughs) so so remember goliad becomes uh the first call a first battle cry for the texians of what they consider a revolution i insist on calling the war for texas independence there's no revolution happening there uh and this is followed very shortly by the famous defeat that that most people have probably heard of, at least in passing, which of course is their defeat at the Alamo in San Antonio. And so the cry of remember Goliad is joined by remember the Alamo. Uh, And again, I'd love to take just a a minute here to talk about, about remembering the Alamo and why exactly it was that Jim Bowie and William Travis and some other unfortunate souls ended up in San Antonio. Um, so again, growing up in Texas, this is a, a story that as a Chicanx, Mexican-American my person myself, you know, you grow up constantly hearing about these white heroes of the Alamo who fought so bravely for freedom against uh, the cruel demon Santa Ana and his 10,000 strong horde of brown, snarling invaders. Brainwashed. brainwashed (laughs) bloodthirsty right willing to throw themselves against the walls (laughs) um fun side note i actually uh, spent a lot of my time growing up in west texas uh in a in a small town called brackettville um right outside of brackettville is a huge chunk of land a giant cattle ranch that was used for just a a ton basically if you've watched a western american western or italian western from the 1930s, 40s, 50s, or 60s, there's a good chance that it was shot out on this land. And it was a ranch owned by a guy named Happy Shahan. And he built an entire, uh, you know, Western town out there that Hollywood would use, reset it up as they wanted it, but it had a full Alamo replica. And so Mm -hmm. as a small Mexican-American child, I grew up reenacting being a defender of the Alamo very regularly. Uh, 
at this site, which is a real mindfuck now as an adult. Um, but anyway, so, so um, the Alamo, for those who don't know, is not a fort. It never was. Um, it's simply a mission. So it's one of the Spanish missions. There are five in San Antonio that Spanish missionaries, the Catholics, built throughout the region as places, right, to retrain and attempt to assimilate indigenous peoples um, into the growing Spanish empire. Uh, San Antonio at this time is a fairly small settlement still. Again, as I was saying, it's, it's in West Texas or Central Texas, and, and so it's pretty hot. It's pretty dry. Uh, it's not where most people are. And so especially when we're thinking about strategic places to hold and control uh, in the early days of the war for Texas independence, it's a real crap place to, to try to hold up at. At the time, it's well behind um, what would have been mostly indigenous and Tejano settlement of Texas. There's not a stronghold of Anglo-American settlers in the region. And then again, as I said, the Alamo itself has some slight fortifications around it, some walls, but it's, it's not a fort. It is a small church. Uh, if you ever go and visit, it'll take you about five minutes to walk through the whole building. It's about as big as my apartment, maybe. It's, it's a real uh, letdown. It's pretty small. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, you kind of start to wonder, well, why? Why did people end up here? And this is where the culmination of we've been talking about all these sort of funny weirdos who've, who've made their way to Texas. So ultimately, um, what happens is Sam Houston, who is at this time... Um, leading the Texian cause, sends a force out to San Antonio where there are some cannons still left behind and sends them with the mission of bringing the cannon back. They don't actually have a lot of cannonade at this point. So the idea is we need you to bring this back. Our stronghold is in the east, back east of the Brazos River. Come back with us. So (laughs) he sends out uh, a group of the regular army uh, which includes William Travis, I believe, sends them with mm-hmm. the mission to bring the cannon and any folks who are at the Alamo back with him. Um, Jim Bowie is, ends up hanging out at the Alamo. <laughs> and he's like, hey, why are we trying to move cannons? It's like a pretty cool place. It wouldn't be really <laughs> cool if we like stayed here and like we defended <laughs> this place. And that would be pretty <laughs> awesome. And I don't like this Sam Houston dude. Fuck him. Uh, and so what you just end up with... another guy who doesn't want to help his friends move. <laughs> yeah, what yeah. you end up with is, is sort of a, yeah. a ragtag crew that includes um, regulars and irregulars who have sort of decided to make their last stand. When William Travis shows up, he has no ability con- to control any of the irregular soldiers that are under Jim Bowie's command and finds himself in the position where enough of his soldiers and all of these others are like, yeah, let's just fucking stay here. <laughs> that he can't actually force command. Nobody's willing to listen to Sam Houston. Everybody's like, I just kind of want to be here. This is this is the spot. And mm-hmm. so it's a really great example. And this is not the only uh, case of this happening during the war, but it certainly is the most iconic failure uh, of the war. It's a great example of, of what's happening throughout the war and what we mean when we talk about this sort of like rugged individualism, I guess, and this... Mm-hmm. Um, this belief that comes out of this slave system on the part of white men that they have the right to command. 
every single stupid fucking soldier on the tech in the Texian cause believes they have the right to command for themselves what they do, when they do it, and how they do it. And so you end up with a group of about 200 dudes who are just like, yeah, this. And so they decide to make a last stand in this very unstrategic location. Nothing Sam Houston can do will convince them to move back. Sam Houston knows if he pushes too hard, he actually might lose other people who are already like, I want to do what I want to do too. And so you actually end up in this interesting situation where like this culture of sort of toxic white masculinity <laughs> all, almost loses them the war because it is not a strategic place to hold, but it is an incredibly bad place to lose a bunch of weapons and people. Uh, and so, of course, what happens next is the routing over several days of a siege of this small force. Most of them are killed. Um, of course, mm. the cannons are lost. And if you're Sam Houston, you're in a tough spot because what are you going to do? Are you going to admit to the rest of your forces, to the Western press that the reason this happened is because you told them to come back and they didn't, so nobody listens to you because you're a sad soft mm -hmm. boy? No. You're going to help take up the cry with everybody else of remember the Alamo and you're going to twist this loss into a, a moral victory of whiteness, right? Mm -hmm. that, that Spartan last stand of the 300 against the Asian horde in that case, in this case against the, the Mexican indigenous mongrel race of Santa Ana and his men. And so, uh, yeah, that's, that's the Alamo. Mm -hmm. And it's quite a major defeat. Um, and really, it, it's quite lucky that the Texian army is able to recover and and turn the tide of the war back. Yeah, it's important to remember that none of the people involved in this are like military strategists or anything. Like William Travis isn't in charge of the regular troops because he knows anything about war. Like it's all social positioning. And it's widely depicted as, so the siege lasts for 13 days and it's depicted as like, that's just how tough these Texans were. And the reality is quite the opposite because uh, Santa Ana is also not a military strategist. <laughs> He's a politician. And he sees this as like, well, if I just go in and fucking, like, this is so pathetic. If I just go in and crush these guys, I'm giving them ammo. And so he basically gives them two weeks to give up. He's like, he just, he keeps giving them deadlines and extending the deadlines to just come out. Right. And so it drags on for so long, really because of the humanity, or if you want to call it that, of Santa Ana, actually. <laughs> it's the funny part. Uh, who then finally fed up with these fucking guys, just says, fuck it, take the fort. Right. Which then on his way east, he passes by Goliad, where presumably James Fannin is still digging for gold in the backyard <laughs> and is like, you know what? fuck it, you guys have one hour to get out of there. And they don't get out, so they just kill everybody in the floor, right? right. Actually, I'm sorry, he gives them one hour, and then Bannon actually does surrender, and they come out and kill everybody. Uh, you know, but Santa has had it at this point, right? Uh, but then, hilariously, he'll get routed, because it turns out he's uh, not a military strategist either, and Sam Houston is about the closest thing to one in this entire war. But, uh, you know, he'll, he'll march east and eventually lose uh, at San Jacinto, uh, to Sam in a in a battle that is really not worth even retelling. It's very uneventful. Uh, so at this point, Texas you know forces Mexico into signing a treaty that acknowledges Texas independence. 
and acknowledges the Texas border at the Noasis, which will be important later on. Yeah. Yeah. That's all like very fascinating. Um, and I guess like now that we have a Republic of Texas, right? Like what kind of country was the Republic of Texas? Because right now it's like not necessarily annexed into the U.S. at this point, right? It's like its own republic. It is. You know, when you don't have to argue in your constitutional convention with anybody who disagrees with the concept of slavery or anybody who's even embarrassed about it, you write a really interesting constitution. Uh, and oh, that's I bet exactly, this constitution is very fascinating. <laughs> well, that's the, exactly the, the setup we have uh, with the Republic of Texas Constitution. It's going to name and say everything that is coded in the U.S. Constitution very clearly. So it's going to enshrine slavery, absolutely. It's going to define and restrict citizenship along explicitly racial grounds uh, as quote-unquote all free white persons. It's going to very specifically name and keep out black folks and indigenous folks from citizenship and goes on to declare further that any free black person who chooses to enter the state, that it is legally the right of the state to sell that person into slavery with the proceeds going into the state government, uh, unless they are granted a special admittance by an act of Congress. It's like, it's like the meme, like, my God, they, he said it. They yeah. just they say <laughs> yeah, straight basically. up said it. Yeah. And yeah. it's important to know, like, this is, uh, this is going far for the time, even like the idea that the state is essentially obligated. If a free black person puts one foot in the, in the state, the state is obligated to enslave them. It's going to presage the Confederacy and it's going to presage mm -hmm. the Confederate constitution. Um, something, of course, that comes up so often when we're talking about the, the Civil War and the South, right, is this idea of individual states' rights and state autonomy. Uh, and really, when we look at first the Texas state con or Texas government's constitution, and then later the constitution of the Confederacy, we can see that nothing is further from their minds than individual state states' rights. They're actually the first thing they're thinking about in centralization because of the needs of, of a slave state. Um, there is no room mm -hmm. for individuals or individual states to step out of that slave system. And so Texas is, is absolutely, um, Ryan, as you were saying, it's revolutionary, <laughs> I guess, if we yeah. want to use that word, right, in that it makes it the state's responsibility to keep free Black folks out. Um, further than that, the Constitution specifically prohibits um, the emancipation of slaves or the passing of laws to ban the importation of slaves. And, and so what this means, right, is actually taking away individual liberty. Mm -hmm. As an individual, I don't have the right, uh, if I was a, a white person in the state of, uh, in the country of Texas at this time, to emancipate people enslaved under me. Mm -hmm. And so when we're, we're talking about all the way up to today, right, these, these ideas of sort of individual liberty that are held so dear supposedly in the South, we, we should remember the Texas Constitution. We should remember that these are going to be things that end up in the Confederate Constitution as well, which is that when it comes to protecting slavery, individual rights and states' rights don't matter for shit. Yeah, I mean, they, they basically make it explicit that not only can an individual not emancipate their slaves, but the, the country itself cannot either, uh, which you'll see in the Confederate Constitution as well. Now, 
they're basically if you read the texas constitution there is a central idea right that this is a country for slavery and the expansion of slavery and there's this interesting editorial in the civilian and galveston gazette in 1843 uh where they're responding to british what they see as british interference and in, uh spain uh, in, in Spanish interests on the West Coast and Mexican interests on the West Coast that they think affects them in Texas. This is a long story that's going to go all the way up to the Mexican War of uh, the U.S. thinking that the British are, are making plans for, you know, the Western territories. Um, but there's this great uh, quote where they basically sum up the position of the Texas Republic. The institution of slavery is engrafted upon our Constitution and interwoven with the very existence of the government, and its abolition would involve the overthrow of both, as well as bear along with it a train of evils resulting from not only the destruction of the evil institutions of the country, but of all order and security both to person and property. Basically, this is happening because Texas is coming into being at the exact time that slavery is in its ascendancy in the United States. It is not less powerful than it was in 1776. It is significantly more powerful. There is, uh, from that same newspaper, there's this really interesting discussion about the the sort of brutality of slavery itself, the brutal extraction of profits from its workers, which I just wanted to read for you guys real fast. Uh, Again, talking about British interference, always the problem. (laughs) Quote, White men neither have been or can be found to labor in its cultivation on the low, rich lands of Texas. Their constitutions are not capable of enduring the heat, and the exhalations of the soil visit them with sickness and death. While the Negro, being differently constituted and apparently adapted by nature to live in such situations convenient enjoys himself as well nowhere else as well as nowhere else is in the ardent sunshine labors without inconvenience and maintains a robust health where white men similarly exposed would meet with certain death and this is to to kind of give a little keyhole insight into the minds of the people of texas of the slave owning class in texas like it's not just that we have the right to own slaves. It's not just that it's profitable for us to own slaves. I mean, if you get right down to it, it's the only way the land could be settled. This is expansion mindset now. Expansion mindset and, and, and of course, like the, the connection, right, between white supremacy and, and capitalism, too, that there is a drive and a desire under all of this that is mm-hmm. to extract the most profit from this land, right? And so this exact same argument is going to be given time and time again up up to today about why undocumented labor from Mexico, mm-hmm. Central America, uh, Latin America is so necessary to the fields of the United States, right? That it, the work, that bend and stoop work is unsuitable to anybody mm-hmm. other than the Mexican people, the people of Guatemala, of Honduras, right? Who are used to bending and stooping and being close to the ground. Um, and so it, it's an argument that gets used again and again when really what's underneath it is it's about who you yeah. can pay the least amount and, to do this know, job. It's a great point. And the thing is, just like with migratory labor today, 
these excuses for how you choose, I mean, very clearly, we want to say choose to run the economy, they those excuses justify the most violent actions against those people, right? Because you're essentially saying there's some sort of subhuman beast. And just as we don't have to have the same laws to protect the, you know, draft horse or whatever, we don't have to have the same laws to protect these people. And in Texas, of course, that immediately is transferred over to the indigenous population. And uh, one of the first acts of becoming a republic is to enshrine an organization that had been created at the during the Texas revolt against Mexico to enshrine them as an official organization or organ of the state, which is the Texas Rangers. Uh, and Marianne, what were the what were the tasks like? What were the Texas Rangers? What did they do? Well, I didn't know the baseball team had such a dark past. <laughs> My God. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's a little surprising. You I know? should know it's something that A-Rod was associated with. <laughs> <laughs> Sus. Uh, yeah, so the Texas Rangers are a a military sort of a pseudo-military at first and later law enforcement group put together um, first during the Texas War for Independence in order to prosecute the war. Again, Texas is sort of trying to cobble together forces. They've got a few regular troops. They've got a, a lot of different irregular troops. And so bringing together the Texas Rangers at first is about bringing together a militia um, to fight the war against Mexico. Quickly afterwards, um, the Texas Rangers are <clears throat> reconstituted into a force that's, that's given two tasks. Uh, and they are a law enforcement force, but the two tasks they're given is to first seek out and return runaway enslaved people. So they're the official slave catchers of Texas. And the second task they're given is to completely eradicate the indigenous population within the borders of Texas. Um, and so something for us to think about here, right, is that the United States has been waffling back and forth between policies of extermination and policies of expulsion, right? Pushing people further west. Uh, Texas has pretty set boundaries, right? It's, it's a much smaller country. And so for them, there is no option as they see it uh, for, for simply pushing indigenous people further west. Um, and, and I think it does matter, again, as I was saying earlier, that, that the region of Texas has a much different relationship um, between indigenous peoples and, and Anglo settlers, first the Spanish, then our Anglo-Americans from the United States, which is that these indigenous folks are, are quite used to controlling and running politics, the economy, um, and, and really military campaigns as well. And so I think as these new Texans see it, these white um, rulers of the Republic of Texas see it. There, there is no room here for quarter. This is an indigenous population they view as entitled and dangerous. Um, it's an indigenous population that we know actively has helped runaway slaves get to Mexico. Uh, they're dangerous. And that's how they're viewed by the Republic of Texas. And they must be exterminated. There's no pushing them to the margins. There's only getting rid of them completely. Um, wrapped up with that, as you might expect, is anybody who's vaguely brown. Um, and so, so while the official order is Indian removal, 
really the job of the Texas Rangers, which they carry out and which they're most notorious for in the, the 19 teens, is a policy of extermination towards indigenous people and towards Tejanos. So towards people of, of mixed indigenous um, mm-hmm. and Spanish descent. And so what they create is a reign of terror um, throughout the state, particularly uh, in the West and along the border of raiding towns. Um, there are several examples of them pulling out in the middle of the night, old folks, children, women, killing them. Um, and so they, they push anybody they can south of the border. They kill anybody who's unwilling to move. Um, and so when you look at a map of Texas today, unlike a lot of other Western states, which certainly are mostly just, you know, federal land in the form of national parks um, or national wilderness, there's almost no reservations in Texas. And that's because of this policy of, of Indian removal. And so the Texas Rangers were this terror force. And so when you read um, descriptions by indigenous folks, when you read uh, early Mexican-American literature, mm-hmm. They're described yeah, as the boogeyman. The thing is, is because of Mexico's moves towards abolition, which it's, you know, by the time of Texas independence is fully committed to people, you know, Mexicans in Texas. So Tejanos in Texas itself are considered to be extremely suspect, right? Are they the ones who are helping the slaves run away? Are they the ones fomenting slave revolt? You combine this with uh, under a burgeoning industry created by, you know, you know, the, the head of the Republic of Texas, Maribu Lamar, who uh, is the first one who starts operating scout bounties, right? And Texas will offer higher scout bounties than other uh, Western states were, uh, will at the time. One of the things the Texas Rangers are is a scalping service, right? They go out, they're allowed to keep all the bounties for the scalps they take. And, you know, if you can tell me the difference between a indigenous scalp and a Tejano scalp, you know, you're doing better than the Texas government, who is quite frankly would pay you for both. And uh, it, they really are a terrifying organization. Again, see Cormac McCarthy's Blood Meridian if you want to really like deep dive into the types of people we're talking about. But I mean, these this is... Uh, a horrifying organization to have to run into, uh, which, as Marianne was alluding to, his reputation uh, and acts continued well after the Civil War. Uh, in the 19 teens, I think it's 1916 or something, the U.S. Senate is even forced to have hearings about the Texas Rangers because of their legendary brutality along the U.S.-Mexico border. That's the type of republic Texas becomes. So just one more quick before we move on note about the Texas Rangers is... Shortly after annexation uh, and in the lead up to the Mexican War, uh, the Texas Rangers, there's a group of them lead a expedition into West Texas to search for, you guessed it, lost Mexican (laughs) gold. No. (laughs) And never come back. And this actually becomes one of the cause celebs in Texas for why we have to have a war with Mexico. These motherfuckers are looking for this gold. <laughs> yeah. And and then die in the desert like a bunch of dum-dums. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, the Texas, the West Texas desert is a very bad place to be. Sounds very dangerous and deadly. It is extremely dangerous and deadly. For human beings to be. Yeah, and people to this day, uh, 
this is part of what makes American border policy so horrifying is that it specifically pushes the uh, migrating population into the desert, right? Pushes them out of the cities into the desert. That's an actual plan, right? Under the Clinton administration. And uh, people die out there by the hundreds every year. It's it's a really it, dangerous place to be. Yeah, and what's fascinating too, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, sorry, and, and fun fact, right there, there are church groups and you know justice groups, immigrate immigration right, rights groups that go out into the desert and set up water for people who are crossing through the desert. And uh, another fun fact, one of the favorite tasks of the border, border patrol is to go out and kick that mm-hmm. water over. Right, yeah. and, and also it's a known fact too that not only do what they just like, you know, it's a literal policy to um, pour out the water, destroy any um, you know semblance of like you know aid in that respect but also that these numbers could be grossly underestimated because mm-hmm. um a human body especially in that type of um heat like a corpse will just disappear within 24 hours like because it'll be eaten by a lot of different insects um you know vultures etc a, cor- a dead human corpse can actually completely disintegrate and, and even its bones can go away just like within a span of a day or so um in those type of conditions so i mean like the, even if you were looking at it, which the u.s is not really interested in mm. having an accurate count but even if they were those numbers will still be lowballed so yeah. you know those hun- hundreds could be in the thousands yeah and it's you know it's it's difficult uh i think for people in other parts of the united states to kind of understand just how unpopulated these desert regions are i mean you literally even with today's technology, et cetera, you literally cannot live there. And uh, so lots of people die alone in the desert and simply will never be found because no other human will walk across that ground. Cool. Well, um, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's bleak. Sorry. I mean, you get so, da- you get so bleak. So, oh yeah. yeah. Not, 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 not like the rest of this episode, which is really upbeat. You really changed the mood there, Brian, with, uh, <laughs> with that one tidbit. We were, <laughs> this is a this is a podcast about um positivity and self-care and you know yeah. ju- just having fun with it well we're rice and grind guys so we've been rooting for the all our heroes <laughs> this whole time yeah this is this is actually inspiration this is entrepreneur uh, <laughs> mindset right here yeah, exactly <laughs> All right. Well, that is very fascinating. Pretty horrifying look at a the Republic of Texas. Um, and it just seems that 11 years later, there was a Mexican war. So what happened there? Why was there suddenly another war 11 years later? And um, what was the result of that? Yeah. So as we were talking about earlier, um, our Texians go into their war for independence with an understanding that what they are seeking is independence from Mexico and eventual sooner rather than later um, annexation into the U.S. And in fact, they they need it desperately. Uh, They need access to the military might and power of the United States, um, both in what they see as the prosecution of their rights to the borders that they imagine for themselves, but also... Um, again, when, when we talk about slavery and controlling slave states, a slave state, it's a garrison state mm-hmm. and, and you need military might and organized, trained military might, which as we talked about when we were talking about the, the war for Texas independence is not a strong suit of the people of Texas. Yeah, keyword organized and trained. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you need a much sort of stronger 
um, more organized military force in the case that you should have an uprising of enslaved people to come and put that down. So there, there's very real concerns um, about keeping what at this point has, has been an explosive um, enslaved population. So around the time of the war, there's maybe five to 6,000 enslaved people in the state. I believe by the time of the Mexican war, that number has ballooned over 200,000. Oh my God. Um, yeah. So they really just start pulling people in. And so we're talking about not necessarily that much bigger of an Anglo population, but a just much, much bigger um, enslaved population that those fears that we talked about that slave owners in Texas have about our indigenous people helping, our Tejanos helping to, you know, helping runaway slaves, helping foment rebellion, all of that paranoia has only gotten worse, right, as the, as the population of enslaved people has, has increased. The other thing is that, you know, slave economies as nations don't really do so well. And so by 1846, the Republic of Texas is bankrupt. Yeah. Oh, that was quick. And so, <laughs> and so for them, they, you know, scalps cost a lot of money, especially when you're paying more than anybody else. And, and really the sort of fear and paranoia that has driven them, the stagnant economy, which, which slavery as an, as an economy is quite stagnant, except for the spread of, of land, right? The expansion of land, they've run into financial problems and they really need, as the South does in the United States, they need that Northern New York money, right? They need that Boston and New York financing to keep them going. And so for Texas, it's never been a question. Um, so really what we should be asking is why does it, why does it take so long? Um, and of course the answer is sectional conflict. Texas is quite a big territory to include into the United States. It would come in as a, as a slave territory, obviously. And what's been happening for the last 11 years is fighting in the U.S. about the admittance. And so a lot of what holds up annexation um, is that half the country is not super hot on bringing in another large slave yeah. state. Uh, into the country yeah there's even some are vocalizing fears that if we bring texas in and it becomes a slave state what if it becomes four slave states you know like what if what if the south uh, gets one over on us and tricks us and makes it you know which remembering back to previous episodes people might remember we have a very stupid constitution that <laughs> uh would that you know if you brought in texas it would make sense to make it like four slave states <laughs> that would give you a lot of excess power so it's a lot of wrangling going on at the federal level about how to bring Texas into the union. They eventually do annex Texas in 1845 under James K. Polk. It's very popular at the time. Uh, but the other sort of problem with annexing Texas is everybody, whether you're an abolitionist or pro-slavery, whatever, understands Annexing Texas pretty much means war with Mexico. You're not getting out of it, you know. And that's the other thing. And Marianne, Mexico, I think now, uh, particularly with sort of American racism being what it is, we'd say war with Mexico. Who cares? Was that going to take a day or whatever? Uh, at the time, though, people in the United States weren't so sure necessarily that a war with Mexico would go so hot. Yeah, they they really weren't. Um, so. <laughs> There's a lot of concern that um, a war with Mexico is going to be protracted, that it's not going to be easy, um, and that, that further, 
what is going to be the outcome of this war with Mexico? And so you've got a a situation that's even more complicated than, say, just our pro-expansionists versus our anti-expansionists. There's also the question of, even amongst the pro-expansionists, what will expansion look like? Is expansion going to mean the inclusion of any Mexican people that happen to be within the borders of whatever you might possibly win from Mexico? Um, and so there's a lot of infighting about what this war would look like, what, what kind of victory you would want to have if you even could get it. Um, and there's concern, yeah, that this is going to cost a lot of money <laughs> and not be an easy fight. Um, but ultimately, it, it's something that Polk and the Democrats really, really want. And so they, surprise, surprise, just like happened in 1835, they create a fictional situation for this war to happen within. And so this is where uh, our Noasis border becomes important again. At the end of the war between Texas and Mexico, the two countries had agreed that the southern border between Texas and Mexico would fall along the Nueces River, which is quite a bit north and east of the Rio Grande. As we start moving towards the Mexican War, Texas starts deciding that that's not what they really remember. <laughs> what they remember is that somebody said Rio Grande. Somebody said Big River. The problem is that Big River was the Nueces. Mm -hmm. The term Rio Grande is just a term that Americans gave to that river. Rio Grande was actually the term Big River for Nueces. But, you know, facts are mushy. You can change them. And so Texas has already begun settling in that valley between Nueces, the Nueces and what we now consider the Rio Grande River. Um, more than that, Polk has begun to send... Uh, the army down there, along with General Zachary Taylor, to hang out uh, at the Nueces and poke around. And ultimately, they cross over and attack uh, under the auspices that because this was already part of the United States, any M Mexican soldiers in this area were attacking them. And so under this sort of under the auspices of this this attack, Polk declares war. Yeah, and so what you have is a border dispute with both Mexican military and U.S. military now hanging out on the border and uh, doing, you know, probably doing incursions on both sides, but definitely the U.S. mainly incurring into the Mexican side. And the U.S. claims that Mexican troops came across the border and attacked them. And this is why we have to fight this war. But the interesting thing is it does lead to, in the House and the Senate, a series of fights over what are called the uh, spot resolution, right? And it's literally an argument about where the U.S. military was at the time of this conflict. Were they in Mexican territory? Were they in American territory? And a young politician from Illinois named Abraham Lincoln is going to become sort of rise to prominence as the uh, the sort of uh, orator and, uh, you know, castigator of the U.S. military, arguing that the U.S. military was, in fact, in Mexico at the time. So a little side note for because a future character. Yeah, because <laughs> everybody fucking knew they were. <laughs> like, <laughs> arguing literally what everybody knew. Yeah, and so, I mean... The aims of the war, right, were to, the, the reason why, right, is, is to secure 
not simply to secure a southern border, to secure the southern border that the United States wants, which is the Rio Grande. Um, so to stop this skirmishing back and forth over Mexico believing they have a right to that territory. Um, and further than that, right, like we have to go back to manifest destiny in this idea of westward expansion. Mexican territory extends all the way up into Oregon um, at this point. And for our expansionists, Polk and the Democrats, right, what they their aim is, is to seize all the way to the Pacific Ocean. They're a little less concerned, I think, at the time with what they're going to do with a lot of the land in between. That's a little like, I don't know, whatever. <laughs> Fly over But there's country. very important Yeah, things. I was about to say. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but those ports are really mm -hmm. important, right? And, and some of this brings back in our British, and they're worried about the designs the British have on like the ports of California, which I don't know that the British were up on any of that. But, but the U.S. is interested both in this fulfilling this dream of manifest destiny, right? The, the potential that's going to have for continuing to have that release valve that Grandin talks about, right? Because um, really, already by the 1840s, even though much of Texas is sort of unsettled because, as, as Brian was talking about, when we were talking about the desert, it, it's unsettleable, um, there's already still stress of like, it's not enough. It's not enough. And so carrying all the way to the Pacific, that flyover country still does have the potential to be a re release valve for the cities in the East. Um, there's the very real and much more immediate political and economic potential of port cities in California and on the West Coast. The reason why you might have some of the Whigs willing to get involved, right, is that by taking as much as they're going to take you, you're going to have land, land that's north of the 3630, which means you can actually bring in some free states to balance out Texas. So there's there's some reasons why ultimately the Whigs and kind of everybody who was dragging their feet on this war is going to say yes. And, and they do. Congress unanimously votes to fund this war. Yeah, it's a little something for everybody. And, it, and it's worth noting, uh, you know, Norman Grabner is a historian, wrote a book in I think the 60s called Empire on the Pacific. And it's his his history of the Mexican War. And it was, you know, I think provocatively titled because he started to point out, you know, when you look at the communications between like people in the Polk administration, things people are saying in the Senate and stuff like that, even though they're talking about a war between, you know, in Texas, in the state of Texas against Mexico, conversations about the San Juan Islands keep coming up. They keep saying things about natural ports, like in what would become San Francisco and stuff like that. And this really is a grand design. Like this war is maybe the closest of any American war to like, yeah, a, gr a grand design on a grand designed imperial project start to finish. And mm -hmm. they even have some discussions, too. And this will be very familiar to uh, the Af people who remember the early days of the Afghan war. All of a sudden, they start talking about, you know, you know, that place, Mexico. I also heard there's a lot of like mineral deposits down there, silver, you know, things like that. Maybe we should go down there, too. And for Southern expansionists, they're all about this. Uh, there's a senator from Mississippi who is going on over and over again about how, look, we should expand slavery all the way down into Central America and take the Caribbean, too. Like that this is just one step and all of the Americas essentially becoming a slave empire. Uh, he would eventually have the ear of James Buchanan, 
who under the Polk administration is the guy who's literally negotiating with the Mexican government. Like, so this is, this is Buchanan's viewpoint in his negotiations with the Mexican government. Um, so this is, you know, a war that nobody remembers happening in the United States, but this really is a, a in the minds of its creators and planners, a grand imperial project. And that imperial project has a character. <laughs> Right. <laughs> what? Yeah. How would you describe the character of this war? This is a this is a race war. Um, this is a, a war fought on racial lines. It is a war fought um, and prosecuted on the part of the United States, both politically and physically on the ground, as a war of white supremacy um, and, and a war of racial violence. Hmm. So the racial violence of this war is just off the charts. Um, General Zachary Taylor, who who really oftentimes is kind of talked about as this sort of refined figure who's a sort of gentleman of the military who finds his way into a political re- career, becomes president. His army is one of the most brutal armies. Mm-hmm. Um, they're no- he's notorious for allowing, um, encouraging his men to rape pillage, steal, brutalize. Um, the stories coming out of this in, in many ways, I feel like you could say echo a lot of what we hear about the Vietnam War in terms of the killing and the brutalization of babies. Um, it's a brutal war, and it's a war that's talked about in the press over and over again in racial terms. Um, by the Whigs, by the Dems, Um, whether it's talking about the extermination of this mongrel race, as we were talking about earlier, or fears on the Whigs part about what are we going to do with a country that has all of these mixed race, brown, lazy, indolent, (laughs) dirty, vicious people. It's, it's in the press, it's in um, the congressional debates, and it's actively a part of this sort of bloodletting. And so it, it feels very much like the prosecution of this war, again, I, I think is built out of the violence of the South and mm-hmm. the slave society that's already been built. But it's also extending that further, extending this racial project further towards uh, a very exterminationist mindset. I, I feel like, I don't know, you'll hear, I feel like European historians talk about World War One and lament this sort of like, the time of like aristocratic gentlemanly warfare is over, mm-hmm. um, which seems stupid for them too. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But fiction exists for them either. But yeah, <laughs> but 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 yeah, a war like this, you know, there's there's no there's no viewpoint coming out of the mouths of the U.S. press or U.S. politicians that in any way is staking this as a war between equals. Rather, this is a war against uncivilization um, for the very sort of like heart of humanity. And whether that's an argument for pushing back and exterminating Mexicans to keep them from any territory that the U.S. is going to claim, whether that is browbeating them into submission, um, the war is constantly talked about in terms of race and race essentialism. Mm. Um, there's going to be scientific terminology used, right? We're going to have phrenology pulled out here, right? Mm. We're going to talk about head shapes and body shapes and skin tones and 
the ways that darker skinned people are from warmer climates are naturally lazy. So all of these arguments we're going to see uh, pulled out um, that are bridging that gap between um, an older sort of less modern form of racism and our sort of much more kind of sociological science race-based arguments about civilization and progress um, mm -hmm. are all on display in the Mexican war. Yeah. And that's, you know, across the board in media, travel journals, etc. And to get back to the sort of savagery in which the war was executed, you know, Zachary Taylor was no, uh, as you described, uh, was, was no angel himself, was no moderate or anything. And even he is sending communications back to the Polk administration saying, I've totally lost control of the soldiers in Mexico. Like they're people who are fully outside of my command who will not listen to me or anything like that. And what he means isn't, Oh, they're going and doing good things. Like that. They, they basically are engaging in acts of savagery that are even offensive to Zachary Taylor. Who's like, Hey guys, like we need to dial it back. I don't know a little bit. And of course at the center of this, one of the units that goes down there, one of the cavalry units, the motherfucking Texas Rangers. And there's a two-volume history of the Mexican War that's written in uh, around, right around 1900 by a guy named Justin Smith. And it's sort of the first like official, like long historical account, like deep historical account of the Mexican War. And uh, Justin Smith is writing with all the uh, racial eloquence you could imagine of an upper-class white guy in 1900, right? You know, he has long <laughs> dissertations on the racial uh, you know, insufficiencies of the Mexican people, all this kind of stuff. So he, again, this guy is not fond of the... He essentially buys the story of civilizational expanse, hook, line, and sinker, all this kind of stuff. And even he spends a couple of pages saying, you know, this war was generally okay. Except for the Texas Rangers, <laughs> they really went too far. Like, he's like, oh, so I'm mean, talking, you know, 70 years later, a guy who buys into this war in every way, basically being like, fuck, they went too far, man. Like, some of the shit they were doing, unbelievable. Uh, I believe at one time, Taylor, at one point, Taylor even tries to send the Rangers home, like, basically tries to, like, say, you guys have to go back to Texas. I'm just like, fuck it. We don't have to do anything. <laughs> you <know? laughs> Which, by the way, you know, ultimately, in the uh, Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo that the U.S. signs with Mexico that signs over all the territory and stuff like that, the Western territory, uh, the Texas Rangers will continue to be upset about this, that they didn't get Mexico, essentially, uh, for years later. They'll have their own sort of, uh, you know cause was sold out mythology uh that you know say uh the the most virulent uh fighters of the vietnam war would have after uh the u.s defeat in vietnam um you know sore winners basically the texas rangers but, <laughs> you know yeah and i think that the one thing that's interesting is that you know that conversely to this hyper violence um and, and the fact that clearly there were so many American soldiers that, that fought this war with a zeal and a glee and an interest in sort of letting out all of their racial prejudices on the battlefield. Um, interestingly enough, though, the Mexican War is also the U.S. war with the highest desertion rate of any yeah. war. And not only do many desert, but a lot of them actually defect. Um and so there, there are several soldiers who defect as individuals, but the sort of most interesting story is that of the 
San Patricio Battalion or the St. Patrick's Mm -hmm. Battalion, which is a whole group of Irish American immigrants who defect. Um, So during the war, the U.S. had received a large number of Irish immigrants. These were folks who were refugees from the potato famine, right? So ultimately refugees from British imperialism, colonialism, and colonial policies, right, had experienced for themselves um, the race policies of of the British. Um, Them moving to, to the U.S. is for Britain, its own safety valve, its yeah. own release valve yeah, Britain's yeah. from for their a lot urban of these crisis. Ships, right, to send them out. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. While refusing to pay to send any goddamn food to the Irish. Yeah. Also, so, refusing to pay yeah. a ship to go from Ireland to London, but will pay for ships to go from Ireland to yeah, New York. Yeah, curious. It was almost like that was <laughs> yeah. like a like targeted intended genocide more than just like a whoopsie, you know? Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> that was like straight up violence on the Irish people. Yeah. Intentional. Exactly. So it provides this safety valve for the British. At first, um, the U.S. sees this also as a boon, right? This supplies the U.S. with a large number of conscripts for the military, um, which allows for a lot of Dems on the East Coast to vibrantly support the war. I'm so in favor of this without ever having to take a step out of their comfortable sitting rooms because an Irish immigrant can go in their place to fight this war. And so it, it's quite a you know slap in the face and a fuck you to them when in mass these Irish immigrants desert, defect, and show up on the battlefield in green fighting for the Mexicans. That's based. Um, yeah, it is. And and in fact, like Mexico is quite smart about this. They they understand that there are a lot of immig- Irish immigrants fighting them, and and they actually do something that that has echoes again to the Vietnam War. They put signs up in English in Mexico that say, hey, to our Irish brothers, you're Catholic, we're Catholic, you think the U.S. sucks, we think the U.S. sucks, you're fighting for the wrong side. And and just as the signs, right, that, uh, you know, the Vietnamese had put up saying for black folks, right, like, we're both experiencing U.S. imperialism, we should be fighting together. Um that's what happens in Mexico and, and it works. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of Irish people that either leave, refuse to fight, just kind of blend somewhere else into, into the U S or move to Mexico and fight for Mexico and stay in Mexico after the war as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's this sort of interesting story of just imperialisms coming together. Uh, a final thought on this is just sort of from the, a meta thought on the history of the Mexican war itself, you know, I mentioned earlier that nobody remembers this war in any way. Uh, but interestingly, it it does get remembered at certain times. So whenever the U.S. is in a controversial war, uh, historians will somehow re-remember the Mexican War. <laughs> and will always just lay upon it whatever the current controversy is, right? It's, it's always the perfect metaphor for whatever the moment is. And um, one of the things that was sort of lost about the Mexican war was this idea of slavery's expansion. And with the rise of the Dunning school in the early 20th century, late 19th, early 20th century, there was this idea that slavery would just go away, you know, that had the U S not had the war of Northern aggression, not happened (laughs) (laughs) that slavery would have fallen apart on its own. Um, 
there's even some Marxist historians uh, like Eugene Chinevese, who is a very important historian, but would push this theory of like, look, there were certain technological limitations to slavery that always limited its growth and historical timeline and things like that. Uh, and in the last 20 years, people have kind of, or last maybe 40 years, people have really reclaimed the story of Southern imperialism. And, you know, a lot of them looking at the Mexican war <laughs> as, as a way of sort of, you know, bringing this point back to the beginning of like, no, slavery is actually extremely vibrant at the time. That's the actual problem. Not that it's decaying. It's that it's so goddamn alive uh, and that it has these grand plans, right? You know, what you see, I mean, this is a, you know, very ambitious imperial project that is largely pushed out of the slave South, right? The Northerners all get on board for it, but it's largely pushed out of the slave South. And that rediscovery of this is kind of re is been one of the the building blocks that's allowed us in the last you know 40 years or so to kind of recast the history of slavery and what little ways we've been able to do in the united mm. states uh <laughs> much to the chagrin i guess of uh you know many communities yeah and i mean it, it seems to recenter how important enslaved people's rebellion is to stopping this right that it mm -hmm. there's no way that slavery was inevitably ending just because it ran out of steam. Um, it had so many schemes and plans to continue on and on as, as long as it would be allowed to, right? It's, it's the revolt of 4 million people against that system that stops the system mm -hmm. and nothing else. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, you know, inevitability of rebellion maybe is the only thing you could say would ultimately stop it. And uh, in part of one of the things that we've tried to kind of draw out in this show too is a return to... Uh, you know, a Marxist analysis of, look, this is the center of the economy, you know, like, yeah. why is it expanding? Why are people invested? This is base and this is base and superstructure, baby. And that's what makes it important. Yeah. So uh, let's uh, close out with this uh, quote from Grandin. This is on uh, page 95 and 98 for those following along. And I really like this quote and I think it really kind of sums, sums it all up. Um, like Europe, the United States, too, had crowded cities and hungry workers fighting efforts to subordinate their lives to mechanical routine. But instead of waging class war upward on aristocrats and owners, they waged race war outward on the frontier. In this sense, then, war came to be both valve and throttle, with each conflict simultaneously venting the hatreds produced by the last while creating conditions for the next. We'll leave it at that. Marianne, thank you for coming on and uh, talking Texas with us. Our podcast listeners don't get enough of this. They love it. <laughs> <laughs> Texas pillowing yeah. our, our listeners. Thank you so much, Marianne. This is awesome. Oh, thanks for having me. <laughs>
lado de la frontera dice que siempre podrán saltar el muro por muy alto que sea. Ellos junto a activistas aseguran que la valla es el peor legado de la administración Trump y que no ha disminuido los cruces de seguridad.